So I went to this bookstore in my neighborhood the other day, and I bought some old sci-fi novels. Ooh, nice. Yeah, I got my first Terry Pratchett book, which I was very excited about. I devoured it. Uh Uh-huh. But I finished it, and so I went to pick another one. Oh, by the way, the book was Monstrous Regiment. Extremely good. So yeah, I finished it, and I went to go get another one from my shelf, and I grabbed it, and I opened it, and it had a post-it note, and I was like, this handwriting looks exactly like Grady's. And I like had a full like weird Whoa. revelation. And then I remembered you let me Dune. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's fantastic. I was like, what are the odds? <laughs> yeah, that's great. I was like, did I, you know, turn in a book to someplace? <laughs> nope. That's you turned great. it into me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we'll see if I like it. I remember I tried reading it like a very long time ago and I got bored. So I like it. Think about like it's very ecological. That's Ooh. one. That's a cool angle to it. Okay. I can I can get down with that. Yeah. So that's a that's a good wreck to our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What are we learning about this week though? Today we're going to learn about Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky. Hey, I heard he was actually Ukrainian. Uh, this is true. Yeah, he was born in Ukraine. <laughs> he told me that right before we started recording, guys. I don't just know things. <laughs> <laughs> you know plenty of things, just not about Leon Trotsky. I don't know anything about this guy. All right. Yeah. So uh, kind of give the broad strokes real quick, kind of an intro. Um, so he was a major player in the history of the Soviet Union. So most people who know anything about him know that, right? Uh, He was in the revolutionary movement way early on before the real shit starts kicking off. You know, Uh, he plays a leading role in the October Revolution and in the Russian Civil War that happens after that. Uh, He helps lead the Bolshevik government in its earliest days. Eventually, he ends up losing a power struggle with friend of the show, Joseph Stalin. Whoops. And uh, he gets exiled and meets an untimely death in Mexico. Oh, yeah, yeah. He lived with Frida Kahlo for a while. Yeah. I saw that house. It's a very cool house. It is, yeah. It's a super cool museum now. So that's that's like the broad strokes of his life. We'll get into details here in a bit. Uh, he was also an important Marxist theorist, developing kind of his own analysis of revolutionary tactics, internationalism, uh, and kind of the, the hazards of Love. a worker state going into <laughs> bureaucracy. <laughs> I guess was the December album. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this sounds familiar. I think we have this guy's been lurking around the edges of the podcast. Mm-hmm. We've mentioned because we uh, talked about Trotskyism in our types of communism, and that's one of the things it focuses on is that bureaucracy part. And so we'll we'll get a little more into the details of that today. So yeah, basically a lot of theory in terms of how to overthrow capitalism and then how to build socialism he had a lot of ideas about how he thought that should work cool let's get into it all right yeah uh so let's start in the early days he was born his name was lev davidovich bronstein Mm, not as catchy it's it's the uh, patronymic naming style so your middle name is like your father son of father oh okay because his father was david leontievich so that was november 7th 1879 the fifth child to like we said, David Leontievich Bronstein and Anna Livonia. They were well-off Jewish farmers uh, in the rural village of Yanovka in Ukraine, which was then part of the Russian Empire. So he also was Russian. <laughs> yeah, that's true. 
I didn't dive too much in the details of his of his youth because it's just not super interesting. At age <laughs> eight, he goes. He's sent off to Odessa for school. Uh, he's a language nerd, learning to speak French and English and German well alongside his native Russian. I will say, I think we've had a few people who are language nerds. I mean, Noam Chomsky comes to mind, but I think someone mm. else did too. So, like, I wonder what it is about that. <laughs> well, one thing is the international communist scene that they end up in demands a lot of in the in the in Europe anyway demands a lot of linguistic uh, analysis. I mean, that's uh, true. Lenin was doing translations and stuff for example. So they have to kind of deal with, you know, Marx is writing in German and you know, they get, they get, they're, they're crossing language barriers themselves. Yeah. Good point. All right. Continue. So in 1896, at the age of 16, he moves to Nikolaev and quickly gets radicalized. Oh, nice. What did you read? <laughs> well, he starts out just kind of in the scene there as a Narodnik, which we've mentioned before. These are kind of agrarian socialists. That were that was that was kind of a one movement going on in Russia at the time, uh, and he joins up with an Arodnik group in you know kind of a local group there. How they all have these like secret societies going on? <laughs> of course, he rushes. Yeah, and he meets uh, there. He meets this interesting lady named Alexandra Sokoloskaya, and she's pretty cool. Uh, she was raised by a Narodnik father and became a Marxist when she went to university. And she j- ends up joining this same group, this Narodnik group, even though she was like a Marxist, which is kind of a different thing, because it was kind of the only revolutionary group in the area. It was like, well, I guess this is what I got. Close enough. Yeah, she was the only Marxist there. And it's there at age 24 that she meets Trotsky, who is described in the histories as her most bitter antagonist in debates. Oh, I love it. Okay, an arch nemesis. Yeah, they debate a lot. And she's like, you're dumb. You should be a Marxist. You know, don't be a Narodnik. And she apparently wins most of those debates because he soon thereafter (laughs) becomes a Marxist himself. And uh, later on, they will go on to get married. I was kind of hoping it. I didn't want to pigeonhole this woman, but I was shipping them already. (laughs) (laughs) I love an enemies to lovers trope. Yeah, so that's definitely how they... I mean, you know, they were comrades too, but it was like this rivalry. So yeah, that's that's him starting out. Uh, he didn't just think these radical things, though. Um, he, you know, we could, we could kind of relate if he was just, you know, coming up with cool ideas, but just kind of hanging out with his friends instead of doing anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> but he also started doing some unionizing. So he was helping uh, Sokoloskaya and her brothers to organize the South Russian Workers Union in 1897. Uh, he was also printing and distributing radical literature all over the place. Who doesn't? Yeah, that was, I, you know, my interpretation of that is like the turn of the century equivalent to podcasting. I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot more dangerous, though, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. You're in public. <laughs> and in a way more oppressive like mm-hmm. overtly, I would say our, our society is plenty oppressive, but so he was actually doing organizing in addition to that. He wasn't just, just shit posting, you know, <laughs> just sitting around in cafes talking about ideas. Yeah. <laughs> so things were going pretty well until he and Sokoloskaya got arrested. Oh uh, man. Which, that happened in 1898. The czar's government busted up their union and they end up spending two years in prison, uh, awaiting trial Meanwhile, Trotsky hears about this Lenin guy, reads one of his books, and is like, damn, this guy's kind of cool. 
Uh, he joins the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, which is the forerunner to the Communist Party. That's the one that uh, Lenin was involved in setting up. Yeah, okay. Uh, in 1900, Trotsky and now his wife were sentenced to uh, four years in exile in Ustkut in Siberia. Oh, man. But at least they get to go together. They end up having two daughters there, Zenaida and Nina. He spends much of his time there in exile studying philosophy. I mean, what else are you going to do? <laughs> I imagine, like, Siberia has a secret, or not so secret, just cabal of communists who are just like, yeah, I got exiled too, welcome. <laughs> oh, yeah, tons of guys get exiled out there. Stalin repeatedly gets exiled out there. Like, <laughs> so, uh, and, and we mentioned Lenin as well. Mm -hmm. Like, guys, if you're running a society and you're trying not to get overthrown, don't exile people out To the same place, at least. Yeah. Try to spread them around <laughs> so they don't just hang out and talk shit about you and overthrow you. <laughs> yeah tips for running a vicious empire <laughs> so he spends time studying philosophy and kind of figuring out his politics and he gradually sides with this radical newspaper the iskra which is translates to the spark this is the one that we mentioned Ooh. was written by lenin and others uh, in the rsdlp the the social democrat party which is like the socialist party social democrat makes them sound like they're like libs but Back then, that's what you called, like, your socialist communist parties. Yeah. Didn't Germany have a similar name to theirs? Uh-huh. Uh, and so, yeah, he was like, yeah, I agree with these guys. These guys are radical and, and cool, and it's way better than, like, there were a lot of reform-minded kind of parliamentary-style socialists at the time. And he was like, that's not so cool. Uh, in 1902, he escapes, leaving behind Alexander and the children. Whoops. She encouraged him to do so. She was like, the revolution okay. demands it. Go do it. You got to do it. Uh, and, you know, I guess they were maybe also falling apart as well. I couldn't find kind of details. I wasn't also that interested in their personal life details, but <laughs> they also divorced uh, that year as well. Oh, okay. So whatever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Who knows? Yeah. Uh, their children end up raised mostly by Trotsky's parents. She ends up going on to... Uh, she kind of stays in exile for a while until the February Revolution breaks out in 1917. Later on, she'll go on to be a founder of Komsomol, which is the Young Communist League. Oh, okay, yeah. And uh, she'll also end up doing some work in the education department there. Awesome. She sounds great. Yeah, she's kind of cool. Uh, so at this point, Trotsky starts calling himself Trotsky instead of Lev Bronstein. What is the significance of that name? Uh, he says that... And I don't know, everything I read was like, he claims, so I, I don't know, maybe this is specious or something, but his story is that this was the name of one of his jailers, Trotsky. Oh, okay. He may have just thought it sounded cool. Well, I mean, like, you know, Lenin was Ulyanov and Stalin was Jukavili or something like that. So like all of them had just had normal ass names and they took cool pen names to write as. Oh, yeah. And to do That's revolutionary shit as. Yeah. Kind of a nom de guerre. After you do your revolutionary book club, after you get arrested and exiled... Then you change your name. Yeah, so be thinking about what uh, <laughs> name you want when shit pops off. Well, I'm already non-binary. They always change their names anyway, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listeners, y'all feel free to come up with a good, cool name for me. I'll take requests or recommendations. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so he ends up moving to London and teams up with Lenin, who's also in exile there, and writes for the Is Iskra paper that he was a fan of. Uh, and he makes quite an impression on Lenin when he meets him and starts working with him. Lenin says he's unquestionably a man of rare abilities. He has conviction and energy and he will go much farther. 
So, yeah, they hit it off. Bros uh, at first sight. <laughs> yeah. They, okay, so one thing about Trotsky is he's very petty. And, you know, we, we learned about <laughs> Lennon already. He is he's also super very petty. petty. Oh, man, I love a petty bitch. Please tell me everything. <laughs> so, yeah, these guys are going to repeatedly get at it. Hold on, hold on. Leon Trotsky horoscope. <laughs> Scorpio! Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. One of the most hated signs besides <laughs> Gemini. <laughs> okay, I didn't know what the reaction meant, so that makes sense. <laughs> oh, well, my best friend is a Scorpio, so I love them. They're messy. <laughs> well? They're, they're very private, and they're very, like... But they're also really intense. They're like, don't love me, but love me. Trotsky was, I mean, he's also like very flamboyant. Like he mm. is a glory hound a lot of times. You know, okay, he wants okay. to be seen doing things. He's super busy. So, but he's, he's, he lets you know. I don't know. Oh, oh my gosh. His rising and his moon sign are Leo's. So yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> okay. Got it. All right. <laughs> Sorry, Just y'all. A, that's what y'all that. come here for. So. <laughs> of course, of course. We're not joking. That's what we think y'all come here for. <laughs> I hope so. I hope I don't get cut. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, in late 1902, Trotsky mm-hmm. meets Natalia Sadova, who's Uh-oh. a fellow revolutionary. Okay, wife too? And yes, this ends up being <laughs> his second wife. They marry in 1903. They have two children together, Lev and Sergei. Lev and Sergei have Natalia's last name, Sedov. It, oh, it's okay. the, the male version of that. Whatever this means, Trotsky said, like, this was for citizenship purposes. So I don't know what the deal with, you know. Yeah, I don't know if he was being a being a feminist or something or, yeah. Well, apparently he doesn't, like, use the name himself. He never goes by Leon Sedov or anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Trotsky was present at the Second Congress of the RSDLP, that party, in 1903. And this is where the party suffered that big split, the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Classic. Yeah. Do you remember what that was about? Were the Mensheviks always menching? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, were they being like little bitches, I'm assuming? But, well, to be honest, both of them were. It was over like the wording of what constitutes a party member. Okay, that's pretty petty. Yeah, but to, in their eyes, so what it boiled down to is the Bolsheviks, or they end up getting called the Bolsheviks, Lenin's guys, Wanted it to be like stricter requirements, like you have to really be in the party, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other guys, the Mensheviks were like, "Eh, let's kind of like anybody who works with us should be in the party. Trotsky was in the Mensheviks. Yeah, who? I mean, I would be. Uh, Yeah, they were, I mean, they had some good points, I think, at that point. Lenin is always kind of conspiratorial, I think, so. Yeah, very secretive. Yeah, and, uh, you know, honestly... It may just be idealism to to be like, oh, let's let everybody in because like that's also an easier way to get raided by, mm-hmm. <laughs> to get raided by the cops. So. <laughs> yeah, and like half these guys have already been arrested. They're probably not too keen on that. Yeah. So Trotsky originally was with the Mensheviks, but eventually he leaves them because the fight between them and the Bolsheviks gets so intense uh, that the, the Mensheviks are like, oh, let's ally with like the cadets, the Constitutional Democrats, these kind of like liberal Constitutional Democracy people. No thanks. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, Trotsky's like, whoa, no. They're called cadets. They sound like nerds. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, they are. And so instead, for a while, he's just kind of calling himself a non-factional social democrat. Ooh, he doesn't like labels. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, during that time, Lenin was talking mad shit about him. <laughs> okay. 
he was calling him a Judas, a scoundrel, and a swine. He really hated him at that point. Jesus, okay. But like, they, I don't know, they argue a lot, but they end up, it's, it's okay. It's like one of those friends you can like say shit to when you get drunk, but it's all okay. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> They're still like, you know, they know that they would come together when the time, you know, when things actually kicked off. Deep down bros. Yeah. <laughs> uh, then on January 22nd, the revolution of 1905 kicked off. And this was what Lenin called the great dress rehearsal. It's kind of like a precursor to the Russian revolution. Uh, the summary is just like times were shitty. Of course, that's why everyone's <laughs> organizing secret groups. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and at that point, there's a bunch of strikes, a bunch of protests. People start assassinating government officials and attacking landlords. Uh, and the czar just is scared and offers just like liberal reforms, uh, which a lot of people were demanding. And, and most people were kind of happy with this, except for like the radical socialists. Things kind of die down. Trotsky, when this happens, he hurries back to Russia and starts working with the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks to agitate. Just to try to push them further left. Uh-huh. Yeah. So he starts publishing leaflets and printing newspapers. He starts talking to striking workers and, and you know, stirring stuff up. In October, he even joins up with the new St. Petersburg Soviet, which was a spontaneous elected council of workers in the city. He ends up its chairman in November after its former leader gets arrested. Uh, but this doesn't really last too long either, because on December 3rd, government troops surround the place <laughs> and arrest Whoops. Everyone there. So he ends up convicted of rebellion and exiled to Siberia. Again. Oh, once again. Back out into the cold. This is great because instead of following along with your notes, I'm just like tabbing through his pictures on Wikipedia. Mm, he's got yeah. a really hot mugshot. Like that hair. He's, he's got a great face, guys. <laughs> Young Trotsky. There it is. I think he's hot. Young Stalin is way hotter than Young Trotsky. Oh, yeah. Let me look him up again. Oh, yeah, he's super hot. <laughs> he looks like fucking Dario from Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, hotter. Do you remember when they just replaced Dario and thought no one would notice? Yeah, they're just like, that's that fine, upsetting. this guy will do it. Dario yeah. one always has my heart. Okay, anyway. <laughs> this, is, this is what you guys come here for. <laughs> uh, so he gets exiled. This time he doesn't even actually end up getting to his destination. He escapes <laughs> okay. en route. Oh, wow. Good security on the train. (laughs) He flees to London and then later moves to Vienna. He spends some time working on the staff of a newspaper called Pravda, which is the, which means truth. Uh, It's this Russian socialist newspaper that they were printing and like smuggling into the country, you know, from exile. And there's a lot of, (laughs) there's a lot of kind of boring inter-party struggles during this time that he's involved in. I'm sure. The Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks arguing. And he's kind of like trying to broker, you know, between the two. And we can skip to World War One at that point. <laughs> That's how long it takes. That's great. It took them what? When does World War One start? Nineteen fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. Hey, I wasn't too so far off. Seven years of argument. <laughs> seven years of just call out posts, call in posts. Oh yeah, uh, it's messy. Yeah. Oh yeah. When World War One breaks out, he has to flee Vienna for Switzerland because, like. Vienna's in Austria-Hungary, and, and they were at war with Russia. He was from Russia, so they were like, fuck you, you know. They were going to put him in an internment camp or something. Oof, yeah, no. World War I is interesting. We've mentioned this before, the, what it does to socialist parties. Uh, it kind of divides up 
the different, you know, there was a lot of internationalism before, but when World War I happens, some people get uh, very nationalist and they say, oh, I got to side with my country. Yeah, some people are like, hey, this is a bullshit war. We shouldn't be doing war. And some people are like, um, no, I'm, I want to be nationalist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, there's, there's a division between the internationalists and the defensists. So the internationalists being obviously against the war, you know, no war, but the class war, basically. And then the defensists picking one side or the other, whoever they thought would be kind of the lesser of two evils, you know. In the Russian party, this transcends even the lines between the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. Like you have some in each in each faction. Lenin and Martov, who's the leader of the Mensheviks, and Trotsky, who's kind of in between, they were all internationalists. So they were all like, fuck this war. You know, to varying degrees, like Lenin and Trotsky still kind of pettily argued about terminology and specifics and stuff, but they both were anti-war. They were both on the same page. Good. Trotsky ends up moving to Paris to be a war correspondent in November 1914. Uh, he starts editing a newspaper called Nasha Slovo, which is our word, in March 1916. Uh, and he's uh, deported for his <laughs> anti-war activities, first to Spain and then to the U.S. Why would you send him there? <laughs> I, I, so I'm not sure on the on the decision-making part of that. Because <laughs> they, like, they also hate anti-war shit, so like... They're just going to pass them to somebody else. So at the time, the U.S. wasn't in the war yet. January no, 1917. Yeah. So maybe it was seen as like, I don't know, a neutral place for a while. But he ends up arriving there in New York City in January 1917. Uh, he's greeted by a fellow Russian exile and future revolutionary sort of frenemy, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nikolai Bukharin. The story goes he bear hugs him at the port. Uh, and basically drags him and his wife across town. It's, it's like real late. Like they've been traveling. They're tired. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But he's like, this, you got to check out this library. It stays open late. It's awesome. <laughs> oh let, come gosh. on. Let me show you. Oh, fuck no. I'd be like, well, let me take a nap. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and over the next few years, they end up working together alongside uh, Alexander Kollontai. Mm, yeah, I like her. Uh, on another socialist newspaper uh, called Novi Mir, New World. Okay, so many newspapers, guys. Yeah, well, you know, you couldn't just start a you know a Twitter account. <laughs> That's true. Or a podcast. So yeah, who was the bear hug guy? Have we talked about him before? We really haven't. He'll he'll come into play repeatedly. This time, uh, okay. Nikolai Bukharin. He's one of the Bolshevik revolutionaries uh, with them, and and so we'll, we'll kind of see what he gets to what he's on about. Somewhat. We're not going to do a deep right. dive. One to watch. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so then he's living in New York City when in March of 1917, the aptly named February Revolution kicked off. You remember that one? Oh, gosh. I'm so bad at these. I don't. <laughs> uh, it is cool. Ooh, I could pull up our Patreon notes. Sorry, I'm still like picturing Trotsky in New York, just like getting bagels, <laughs> doing his shit. Like, I want to see... I wonder if he, there's, like, some history on that. You know, like, if they have, like, where he stayed or whatever. Oh, yeah. That'd be, cool. that'd be cool. Okay. February Revolution. Let's see. I'm cheating and looking at your notes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, this is the one with the Women's Day protests. We're just like, hey, fuck you guys. We want bread and the war. Get rid of the czar. And troops mutiny. And the czar has to leave or he has to quit to save the country. Oh, and then this is when they get the provisional government. A boring, shitty government. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
huge protests and yeah the military just goes to the czar and is like you've you've got to resign bro otherwise civil war nobody likes you and so yeah that's that he he did they have the provisional government yeah that's the the ones who are like oh let's just like keep doing the war y'all it's fine <laughs> it'll be cool uh yeah so trotsky hears about this kicking off and he takes off you know he's like i'm going to russia shit's happening but he gets intercepted by the british on the way uh, and detained for a month in Amherst internment camp in Nova Scotia in Oof, Canada. That doesn't sound great. Yeah, they were interning people. Uh, they had interned more than 8,500 enemy aliens across Canada. They figured this guy may, may be a threat. He's a, you know, revolutionary. Let's detain this dude. So were Britain and Russia allies in this? Uh, mm. Yes, they were. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if they're like, yeah, we don't need this guy stirring up trouble. Like, we kind of need Russia's help right now. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that was one of the big uh, and one of the big reasons that the Germans let Lenin back into the country. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, so while in the internment camp, Trotsky is just kind of a thorn in the side to prison administrators. Uh, he's a rabble rouser. Of course. Uh, he's telling the prisoners <laughs> like all about the revolution that's kicking off in Russia. Um, he's telling them about Lenin. And he does all this so much that the German prisoner of war officers that are there, they complained to the British camp commander. Can you shut this guy up? You know, <laughs> that's hilarious. Like, Oh no, thank you. I don't need any more pamphlets, Leon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Have um, you heard the good news of revolution? Yeah. And they didn't want him like in basically, you know, infecting their troops with, mm-hmm. with communism. Uh, that's and funny. the British forbade him from giving more public speeches and like the prisoners like petitioned against it saying, no, we like him. <laughs> it was this big deal. And eventually like the provisional government doesn't want him back, but there's popular pressure to demand his release. And so eventually they do because they're like, well, shit, everybody He's wants causing him trouble here. Yeah. So they ask the British to return him. And so they do. I love how this guy is so difficult. He just repeatedly gets passed around various prisons until they get sick of him. Yeah, they're <laughs> like, like, you want him? What about you? Uh, yeah, he does not seem easy to get along with. Like, that's a common thread. <laughs> no. uh, such a Scorpio. <laughs> uh, so he makes it back to Russia in May, and he goes to work organizing with the very, very fractured uh, RSDLP They've got, like, more than six factions at this point. It's crazy. Woof. Okay. Yeah. He gets elected in June uh, to the All-Russian Congress of Soviets of Workers and Soldiers Deputies. So, like a... A committee? Kind of like like a... Yeah, like a... You have the Soviets, right? The Workers' Councils electing people to go from all the Soviets. So, like a larger group of them. Okay. Uh, He was one of the party's leaders in the failed... July Days Uprising, which is kind of like where there were street protests and stuff. The Bolsheviks were really caught off guard by that. And, he and you know, they were all just trying to, like, scramble to keep up. Unlike Lenin, who did get away from that, he did not. He got jailed by the provisional government. Not again. Uh, and he's sitting in jail uh, when there is a coup attempt by General Lavr Kornilov called the Kornilov Affair. This is... we. Briefly covered this in the Russian Revolution. It's kind of a little hiccup. Uh, but Kornilov is this general who looks like he's going to basically do a coup on the provisional government. And the provisional government is desperate to survive. And they decide, well, we're just we're going to arm the people. We're going to you know, arm even the Bolshevik militias and everything. 
Uh, and the militia and the Bolsheviks are like, yeah, well, if you want us to actually help, maybe free our people like Trotsky, who we like now. And so they do. So they end up freeing Trotsky after 40 uh, days in jail. And it's uh, here where he kind of like officially is with the Bolsheviks now. Okay. Real quick question. Yeah. What was Kornilov's deal? Like, what was his platform? Uh, he was kind of a law and order guy. He was trying to restore peace and saw kind of like all the Soviets springing up and everything as like too chaotic and counter to the government. Uh, okay. So he was a fucking loser. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Yeah, he was. Sorry. I'm like trying to mentally keep track of all this. This is a lot. This guy moved around. <laughs> yeah. He got arrested so- a lot. So he just, yeah, he's coming back during the February Revolution. He got jailed and then sprung free to help the defense of of Petrograd, which is St. Petersburg. That's that terminology thing. <laughs> yes. They yes. changed the name. <laughs> and he's he's helping defend against this coup, uh, which it seems like at the time they're going to like get arms and, and do a big battle. But what it actually ends up amounting to is like strikes on the railroad, shutting shutting them down. And then, like, actually just going out and convincing Kornilov's army to switch sides. And so the whole thing, like, peters out before there's a big conflict. Okay, the strikers were on whose side, for the most part? On the Bolsheviks. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it ends up being, it ends up making the Bolsheviks look super cool, and Trotsky now with them. Yeah, yeah, like, this guy helped. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's kind of thrown in with them now because, like, the July days kind of made it clear that the revolution wasn't going anywhere without strong leadership, without a vanguard party. And he's like, these guys know how to do it. And the Mensheviks are over there talking about working with the provisional government. So like, I know where I'm going to go. Uh, Trotsky continued to take the lead in revolutionary activities. He ends up elected chairman of the Petrograd Soviet in October uh, when the Bolsheviks gain a majority there. And he ends up on the Bolsheviks central committee too. This is like their inner leadership circle their cabinet kind of thing yeah yeah okay and it's there that they voted 10 to 2 on october the 10th to stage an armed uprising to take power from the provisional government so this was the october revolution okay gotcha and trotsky ends up the main planner of this oh i didn't realize that (laughs) or i forgot it guess which episodes i should have listened to beforehand (laughs) (laughs) Uh, even his future best friend, Stalin, says as much. After he's already exiled Trotsky, this is 1934, he's reflecting back on the October Revolution, and he says, all practical work in connection with the organizing of the uprising was done under the immediate direction of Comrade Trotsky, the president of the Petrograd Soviet. It can be stated with certainty that the party is indebted primarily and principally to Comrade Trotsky for the rapid going over of the garrison to the side of the Soviet and the efficient manner in which the work of the Military Revolutionary Committee was organized. Damn, he really did the work. Yeah. Yeah, even the guy who exiled him said so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There's this story from Molotov, who's uh, one of the top Soviet guys that was kind of like a Stalin loyalist sort of dude. Uh, and this is again after he's exiled or whatever, and he's going over this, like this volume of Soviet history of the October Revolution, uh, and he says, "But where is, uh, where is Trotsky?" And <laughs> Molotov's like, "Trotsky's an enemy of the people, man. He's not in here." <laughs> and Stalin's like, "But he was like in charge of of all yeah. the shit. Like he did it. Like we can't." <laughs> <laughs> you can't just leave him out. Yeah, but on the other hand, you know, he he did like erase stuff from history, so it's not, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 
He did like doing that. But he also, I guess, to say he knew what he was doing, you know, he knew how important Trotsky had been. So the October Revolution ends up a success. Uh, They take key points in Petrograd and storm the Winter Palace, where the provisional government was being held. Uh, Kerensky fled. That's the prime minister. He fled and uh, the rest of them are arrested. And Lenin announces to the people that, hey, we did it. We're in charge. And like we said, that was kind of all Trotsky kicking that off or organizing that. Him and Lenin uh, were pushing for, you know, let's do this now. Uh, At that point, the Russian Civil War kicks off between the new Bolshevik government and all the forces that opposed it. (laughs) Yeah, everyone who got kicked out of their jobs and wealth. Yes, yeah. And well, (laughs) not just them, like, because you also have like peasant uprisings and anarchists and there, there's a bunch of stuff going on a whole episode one day maybe, but uh, we'll, we'll just keep it focused on what Trotsky did during that time. So first off his role in government in 1917, when the Bolsheviks take power is as the people's commissar for foreign affairs, basically like the main diplomat. Okay. That makes sense. He's into that stuff. Yeah. So one of the big things that he and the Bolsheviks had been yelling about since 1914, what made them really popular with the masses was, and the war. So that's what they said about doing. This history is so crazy. I almost forgot we were still in World War One. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> they had a lot going on. And that's one of the big things that like makes the provisional government so unpopular and makes the Bolsheviks able to take power is the war is Russia's continued disastrous involvement in the war. Trotsky <laughs> to start out with, he puts the allies on blast. He releases a secret agreement called the Sykes-Picot Agreement that Tsarist Russia had signed with the Allies. He, you know, they find the treaties and they're like, oh shit, this makes them look so bad. Let's release it. They just publish it. <laughs> okay, what's so bad about this treaty? Well, it was all about how the Allies were going to carve up and rule the remnants of the Ottoman Empire after the war, even though the UK had promised the Arabs independence in exchange for their help. Oh, yeah, that sounds about right. So he kind of does the 1900s equivalent of posting screenshots of a group chat. (laughs) Yeah, he does. He just puts it out there. Oh, okay. Yeah, I love it. Air that dirty laundry. Yes. So that was, I thought that was a funny little bit. (laughs) Next, it's on to making a peace, a separate peace with the central powers. The, The allies are still fighting, but Russia's like, we're out. They sign an armistice in December 1917 to stop the fighting briefly while they work on a treaty. Uh, The Treaty of Brest-Litovsk is what ends up coming out of this. And it turns out to be pretty punitive. Uh, Russia ends up surrendering tons of land and having to pay huge fines. Ooh, I'm looking at a map now. That's that's a lot. (laughs) It's like all of Estonia, Ukraine. Wow, that's a big chunk of land. Yeah, it was a ton. And there was a lot of disagreement within the Bolshevik government as to whether or not they should even take, you know, accept this treaty. Yeah, yeah, understandably so. Yeah, so some of them wanted to reject it and start a revolutionary war with the central powers broadly in the hopes of instigating a wider revolution in Europe. You know, a a version of continue the war, but this one less of a, like, fighting for land Less imperialist. Yeah, and more like trying to liberate people. So, okay. Okay, okay. Others, like Lenin, were focused mostly on ending the war. Lenin was like, yeah, it'd be great, you know, if we had a European-wide revolution. Cool. Um, but, I'd be into it, but uh, we're, like, dying. Right, yeah. If we get defeated in the meantime, 
uh, that's that's going to be pretty bad. We're the only socialist country in the world right now, you know. So he was fine with kind of like dragging out negotiations or whatever, hoping for a wider revolution. But he was basically like, once they give us an ultimatum, we got to sign it, you know, even if it's bad. Understandably so. Otherwise, we get invaded and it's going to be worse. So Trotsky was his his slogan or his idea here was no war, no peace. He wanted to stay out of the war, but he didn't want to sign the treaty because it looked really bad. He was hoping basically to instigate a wider revolution or to get the Allied powers to end the war too or something. He didn't want to do this because it was bad, but he didn't want to like rejoin the war. So kind of this weird middle position. Yeah, third option. Right. And so for the moment, that's kind of what they went with. Because uh, again, Lenin was kind of fine with delaying for a bit. But eventually the ultimatum comes. In February 1918, Germany tells him, sign the treaty or get invaded. Trotsky and Lenin and uh, what are called the left communists, the ones who want to do the wide revolution, they're still kind of disagreeing. They don't have a majority either way. And Trotsky's like, let's, I th- you know, maybe they're bluffing. Let's, let's see if when they give this order, the, the soldiers and stuff, they'll rebel and, and maybe join us, you know. So let's hold out. <laughs> it's pretty hopeful, but okay. Well, it was very hopeful, over hopeful. They were not bluffing and the German army invaded. Oh, gosh. Uh, And they, I mean, they just ran them over. You know, uh, it's February 18th. The Bolshevik Central Committee meets again and is just like, holy shit, we're getting dominated. Uh, They they vote to accept the treaty. It's still a close vote um, because people are still pissed. The Germans just keep marching anyway, even though they're trying to tell them that they give up. So it's February 23rd that they... Say, oh, okay, oh, you want to give up now? All right, and they give him, like, an even worse treaty, like, they cut off some more land. Even Lenin at that point is like, holy fuck, like, this is... (laughs) We fucked up. Yeah, maybe we do have to fight. But he's like, no, 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 like, that would be really stupid. Uh, We have to, you know, this is humiliating, but we have to agree to it. Yeah, because, I mean, in the meantime, the Civil War is still happening, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, we'll get to that. Yeah, you don't got time for this. (laughs) So the Central Committee votes to accept the even shittier treaty, Trotsky and his group abstain from voting. Embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, I guess at least they let him have the treaty, but I don't know. I would I would go ahead and have already voted. I don't know. That was kind of a mistake, I think, to hold out. The yeah, to, to be a holdout at that point. Like, just, just own up. You fucked up, dude. The treaty was signed March 3rd, 1918. Finally ends Russia's, like, again, completely horrific involvement in World War I. Uh, it pisses off the rest of the Allied powers because they've just dropped out, you know? And so, it, you know, it makes them so mad that they're going to end up uh, helping out to the anti-government forces in the Civil War. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no friends. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. One enemy down. Uh, now we've got to stay in power against the white army, against separatist forces, peasant forces, anarchist forces. It's like crazy, crazy complicated. <laughs> so we're just going to focus on what did Trotsky do? <laughs> Okay, great. Uh, It's early in 1918 that Trotsky is put in charge of reorganizing the Red Army, which had just like gotten its ass kicked by the Germans. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Does he know anything about armies? I don't remember hearing that part in his biography. Uh, He was not a soldier. He had never been a soldier. (laughs) Great. He's going to try his hand at it. Why not? You know? Yeah. You know, I bet he's read some books. Learn by doing. (laughs) (laughs) So on March 13th, he resigns from the Foreign Affairs Post to become head of the Red Army, Commissar of the Army and Navy Affairs, and Chairman of the Supreme Military Council. So like the undisputed, complete control, only responsible to the rest of the leadership of the Communist Party. That's pretty wild. 
And in this capacity, he drastically reorganizes the Red Army, transforming it from a small mishmash of independent battalions with little discipline into a huge, highly effective military machine. Okay, so I guess he read enough books. (laughs) Right. Well, we want to kind of break apart how he does this because it's quite the accomplishment. He is up to the task because of his ruthlessness, his attention to detail, and his organization. Yeah, he's an organizer. He sounds, I mean, from all the description of this, he sounds like he would be a horrible boss to work for. (laughs) Oh, no. Like you would not want to work for Trotsky. Okay, what'd he do? Uh, I mean, so this is him describing himself. Oh, gosh. Okay. This this is the best possible reading. <laughs> it is no wonder that my military work created so many enemies for me. I did not look to the side. I elbowed away those who interfered with military success, or in the haste of the work, trod on the toes of the unheeding and was too busy even to apologize. <laughs> he said, out of my fucking way. I got shit to do. Yes. Uh, okay so first of all he was just that was you know his personality coming to it uh but let's take a look at more you know concrete like what were his means uh for one he introduces mandatory conscription when people resist uh they go out to the villages or whatever with the draft units to to get people you know uh and and turns out you know so many people this is supposed to be a village with however many people but so many people fled beforehand uh, ran off into the forest or whatever uh the Bolsheviks would take hostages and sometimes <gasps> even just execute some people. Oh, shit. Okay. To get people to come back so that they could put them in the army. This is strike one. <laughs> strike one. All right. <laughs> strike one for Leon. I'll tell you the benefits, though. The army grows from less than 300,000 to 1 million in a matter of months. I mean, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> when you're holding grandma hostage, so you sign up. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, I, I guess I don't have a problem with calling that one a strike. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, I mean. He did his job. He was whatever means necessary. For yeah, sure. seems like it. <laughs> so that's one means. He also put in political commissars into each Red Army unit, uh, which were officers that were in charge of ensuring the political education and the loyalty of Military generals, especially. One thing is they were like, we don't have anybody who knows anything about what they're doing. We have to bring into the army these old officers from the Imperial Army, from the Tsar, because they at least know how to soldier. But we don't want them like, you know, running off and doing a coup. So that's what these political commissars were there to kind of make sure. Okay. So it's almost like a youth pastor, but for communism. Well, it's more <laughs> like a, it's like a supervisor. Like they had to like sign off on the orders to make sure they weren't like secretly uh, organizing, you know, a counter revolutionary thing or something. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I thought these were more for education of like the regular troops, but it's more to oversee the, the old guard. Yes. Well, kind of, okay. a little bit of both, a little like they also were, you know, propagandizing to everyone too. Uh, because a lot, like, you know, with conscription, you get a lot of people that don't give a fuck. They're just there because yeah, they like, have to be. Uh, you literally just told me to show up. So there were also, speaking of those sorts of people, there were also a lot of desertions. Trotsky dealt with this in a couple of different ways. One was through persuasion. Uh, he actually had like a dedicated train, like an armored train that he went around the country in, uh, like just kind of giving rousing speeches about the revolution and like trying to gin up support among the troops. So that was one way, kind of the, that was the carrot. Uh, The stick was instituting what are called blocking units, which are troops in the rear of a formation uh, that prevent deserters 
just capturing them and returning them to battle or shooting them. Okay, not great. Make sure that you go toward the enemy because otherwise, blam. Yeah, yeah, that's not great. Um, I'm going to just lump that in with the first strike. (laughs) Okay. Not into this whole very strict military thing, but that's just me. Well, on the other hand, he's fighting a a civil war, so... Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get why he's doing it, but I don't like it. (laughs) That's, yeah, that's that's fair. It's it's gruesome. Yeah. It's one of those weird things in history. I, I I found myself thinking about this a lot when studying Trotsky is... Because one of his big things is, one of the big things people think about is like, would the Soviet Union maybe have been better if he had been in charge, if he ends up, you know, in charge instead of like Stalin later, right? And it's like, we can't really know. We'll talk about it some more, but like, this is an example, right? We don't really know if maybe the Russian, the Red Army would not have even survived, you know, had he not done these things that we're looking at and like, man, that's vicious, you know? And conversely... If he were in charge later, we don't know if he would have been like this harsh still, you know, he could have still totally done some bullshit. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, history's full of these what ifs that you can't prove one way or the other. But anyway, by mid 1919, the Red Army, massive, powerful, reformed army that Trotsky had made it, had defeated the White Army's offensive in the East, uh, but it was getting owned in the South, so bad that by October, Lenin was talking about abandoning Petrograd uh, for Moscow, which at that point was the capital anyway, but he was just like, let him have Petrograd. It's lost, you know? And Trotsky was like, no, we gotta, we gotta hold it. We can't just abandon that. And he convinces the rest of the leadership to vote for it. So they end up like, you know, voting against Lenin in that. It's interesting how democratic they are in those very early days in the Central Committee. We, you know, sometimes in the West, we're always like, well, you know, Lenin, he was 100% in charge. And then it was this guy 100% in charge. It's like, no, they, they did have that internal party democracy. They still took the time to vote, even though they were fighting a crazy war. Yeah. So anyway, they decide we're going to defend Petrograd. Trotsky goes there himself and leads its defense. Uh, he arms everyone, men and women. And he even personally stops some fleeing soldiers just like, hey, I'm the I'm the motherfucking commander of this army. Get your ass back <laughs> Get there. back in line. Yeah. Oh, my God. Like, okay. Holy shit. That's dry. You know, like, shit, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's successful. It's it's kind of a there's this badass quote. He describes it. It's it's impossible for a little army of 15,000 ex officers to master a working class capital of 700,000 inhabitants. And he was saying that the city would defend itself on its own ground and the white army would be lost in a labyrinth of fortified streets and there meet its grave. So he's like street to street fighting, yo, let's do this. And they do end up winning. They do end up driving the white army back and ending up on the offensive yet again. Okay. So they take back Petrograd. Yes. Uh, In 1921, uh, the red army faces something called the Kronstadt rebellion. What's that? We had the corn lob, now we got the Kronstrat. Yes. <laughs> so Kronstadt was uh, was this island that was kind of like a part of Petrograd, the city. It's um, like a like an island on the c- coast, sort of. It was like connected with like this dam bridge sort of thing. It was like a, um, a defense post, a fortress. Okay, so it's on the Baltic Sea. Yeah. They rose up against the government, against the Bolsheviks. Uh-oh. Why'd they do that? Well, they had been supportive of it up till then, but they rise up because they're complaining about the economic hardship of the war, of um, the Communist Party being 
you know, kind of dominating everything, like being completely in charge uh, and complaining that there was a lack of workers' democracy. Ooh, was that true? They uh, were correct that the communists, like, did have a, you know, they were the ones in, in the government because the social revolutionaries and the other parties, basically, had all but left. So, like, they were kind of the only ones in charge. Um, the lack of workers' democracy is complaining about the fact that, or the perception of, it depends on how you look at it, uh, the Soviets, you know, how the whole thing it's kicked off with, like, all the different regional Soviets and whatever, being mostly in charge, doing their own thing, uh, now kind of being subordinated in a way uh, by the, you know, the national leadership there, the, the, the worker state they had created. Oh, okay. So they're saying they didn't have enough power. Right. Well, they, they kind of wanted things, you know, more local, more decentralized in a way. I mean, that sounds good. So yeah, they issued demands to the government for reforms. They wanted new elections to those Soviets. They wanted freedom of speech and press. I liked that they, they phrased it as for anarchists and socialists. Like they didn't want reactionaries <laughs> to be able to do it, which <laughs> is kind of good. I uh, love it. <laughs> The uh, end of, you know, just Communist Party domination completely and the end to war communism. This is what we're talking about with the economy thing. Uh, this is where this, you know, they're in the Civil War. Th- things are desperate. Uh, the state took over directly like the economy. They were requisitioning and rationing everything, just making sure that everybody, especially in the cities, were getting fed because like it was hard to get anything at all. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. Like that's. I think that's the classic centralist problem with centralization. Yeah, yeah. And versus more separatist stuff because like if you are in the middle of a war and you're trying to just feed people, it does kind of make a certain sense to just like fucking organize it and, you know, do it on a large scale in a large government setting. But I I get where they're coming from both ways. It's like you're just trying to fucking survive. You're probably going to do some bullshit. <laughs> Right. And so, you know, and then, yeah, they're saying, well, this is bullshit. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) They kind of figured that the government would listen to their demands and kind of like negotiate. Um, They're like a tiny island. I just Googled them. They're so small. (laughs) Yeah. But like they did have a lot of sympathizers in the Petrograd Soviet and kind of just the people. uh, But the government was not having any of it at all. Uh, Trotsky and Lenin both accused them of being a French op, basically, like a oh, counter-revolutionary wow. plot. That's, that's great. Okay. And uh, they demanded their unconditional surrender. They didn't get it. And on March 16th, the Red Army invades Kronstadt and crushes the rebellion, killing 2,500 to 3,000 people. Woof. That's not great. I think that's going to be my strike, too. Strike two, the Kronstadt rebellion. That was Emma Goldman's strike as well. She hated that. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, that's fair. She was like, what the fuck are they doing over Me and there? Emma, we always see eye to eye. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that, that was, that was kind of lumped in with the Civil War. It's, a li- I mean, it's, it's, it's part of it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, internal issues as well. I mean, it's a Civil War, it's all internal, but this one's very <laughs> internal. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the Civil War, like we said, is long and complicated. Eventually, the Bolsheviks, eventually they end up winning the main phase of fighting is done by 1921. And then they kind of clean up after that. Uh, the war is really, really costly. This is when they do the Red Terror. Uh, this is where they turn on the anarchist Black Army who would help them fight against the White Army. Uh, this is where they crush the various peasant uprisings, sometimes called the Green Armies. Okay, yeah. 
but they do win. They maintain control of the country, the first such revolutionary government of an entire nation in the world. Yeah, I mean, pluses and minuses. <laughs> this is, yeah, I mean, again, this is where we get into, like, what if they hadn't done that? Could they have, you know, could they have done it nicer, you know, or whatever? Who's to say? I think it's interesting, too, because some of our earliest episodes were on on the Russian Revolution and, like, some of these mm-hmm. major figures. And I think now, having done this podcast for over a year, like, I am way more anarchist, and now I'm, like, way more Ooh. icked out by all this. I'm like, ooh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> uh-huh. I think before I came more to it, like, oh, I don't like killing people. And I, I still don't like killing people, guys. I didn't change my mind on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a murderer now. But I think I'm I'm much more for self-determination. So, like, the idea of obviously turning on anarchists doesn't sit well with me and crushing peasants. Like, oof, that's pretty rough. If you're such a good influencer, Trotsky, why don't you try to talk to people? Come on. Fair enough. Fair point. I mean, <laughs> I think they saw at that point they were they felt backed up in a corner. Everyone was an enemy who wasn't willing to accept, in their view, the will of the people, right? In, in their, like, the, the Soviet authority, meaning, like, the workers' authority, the worker state. And if you didn't go with that, then you were, you needed to be defeated. Not necessarily killed to a man, but, you know, defeated on the battle. I mean, I, I, I guess uh, I don't like, you know, elements of what they did. I think, like, parts of the Red Terror kind of... I mean, they were, you know, targeting class enemies in large parts of that, not just like innocent people, but like, like you said, with the, against the anarchists and everything, I don't know. I could see, I can definitely see myself ending up in the mindset that could do things like that, right? Like that could be like, well, we have to do it, which is maybe a fault. Maybe I shouldn't feel that way. <laughs> no, I think, I think it makes sense. And I think, again, coming from their perspective is like a kind of, insular secretive organization and like they are on the tail end of like three wars like yeah Mm -hmm. they probably are very paranoid right now but it's to me it's like what are you offering these people you know like if your offer is so good you should be able to convince them or you know at least not have to like execute people so much i i understand class enemies because like they have a vested interest but like I think you should be able to talk the anarchists like, hey, you know, we're, don't worry. Hold on. You know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a good point. And it's possible that that could have worked. They did not try it. So we won't know. That's the thing. <laughs> they didn't even try. Well, okay. So Trotsky. In 1920, he's still head of the Red Army. He was also put in charge of the railroads. That's a lot. Yeah. That's a, <laughs> he's a, a busy a, guy. A, a, yeah, I guess at this point he had some railroad experience. He was riding around on a train frequently. So <laughs> he's just like the seats are uncomfortable. Can I like take care of these for a minute? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the railroads badly needed to be rebuilt after the the main phase of carnage of the war, and so he kind of took the approach to this that he took from his military experience. He kind of wanted to militarize the system, nationalize the whole thing, regiment everything into, you know, into an orderly system. And that same year, there ends up being a debate about labor unions that nearly splits the party. And our man Trotsky is involved in that. Uh, some people in the party called the, the Workers' Opposition, there was also a group called the Group of Democratic Centralism. Uh, just factions, think of it that way, like kind of parties within parties, you know. Uh, they wanted the economy to be more or less directed by unions directly, like, you know, a Soviet 
sort of economy of workers' councils, decentralized, federated, however you want to call it. Yeah. What's that called again? There's a word for it. Syndicalism? Yeah, it's almost like anarcho-syndicalism. Not quite 100% that way, but like... Got some of that flavor. Yeah. Others, like Trotsky, wanted to completely nationalize and, for Trotsky, even kind of militarize the economy. Trotsky? uh, He wanted the state to be completely in control of the unions. Uh, He said, basically, you know, it's a worker state, so that would be good, right? Um, Mm. His quote that kind of lays bare his position here is, a regime in which every worker feels himself a soldier of labor who cannot dispose of himself freely. If the order is given to transfer him, he must carry it out. If he does not carry it out, he will be a deserter who is punished. Who looks after this? The trade unions. It creates the new regime. This is the militarization of the working class. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sold on that one. You don't want to be drafted into the labor army? (laughs) No, not really. Uh, Yeah, Lenin thought that that sounded kind of bullshit, too. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, bro, I think you've been in the army too long. (laughs) Yeah, kind of. He's like, this is, that would be very bureaucratic, very top down. That sounds awful, dude. Like, no. (laughs) What are you thinking? So his his line was that the trade unions should be the schools of communism. They should educate workers politically and economically, just kind of on the class struggle and everything. Should be kind of, you know, almost organs of propaganda in that way. That was Lenin's view? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I I like that better. (laughs) Well, that's the position that ends up winning out. (laughs) And Trotsky going out there, you know, saying every worker is soldier, pretty much. Uh, Lots of people saw that as a pretty extreme, pretty unpopular uh, (laughs) take. (laughs) After, like, World War I and the Civil War, being called a soldier forever doesn't sound great. Yeah, war forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, people were like, you know, because he was super popular after his victory in, you know, not his per se, but like leading, helping to lead Russia in its its victory in the Civil War. But (laughs) then he wants to regiment everything. Not great. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting. Like, this is not at all what I thought Trotsky was about. Okay. Well, we'll get to some of his more theoretical approaches. A little later. These are just kind of inter-party, you know, debates. But, like, that should that should be informed by your theory, bro. You know, I think it is in a way. Well, I don't know. I think he's contradictory sometimes. Okay, well, okay. Well, in May 1922, Lenin suffered the first of three strokes that he would have. Oh, yeah, yeah. His health is pretty much on the decline from then on. Uh, and it starts a <laughs> sometimes subtle, sometimes not so subtle struggle for power within the Communist Party uh, between its top figures, including Trotsky, Stalin, a guy named Grigory Zinoviev, who was head of the Comintern, and Lev Kamenev, who was the secretary of the Politburo and also Trotsky's brother-in-law. Oh, okay. A little bit of a frenemy situation there. Yeah, they're all just hovering. <laughs> Yes, they're, and they're kind of like trying to outmaneuver each other. And, and I mean, to be honest, or to be, critical? I mean, to be fair and oh, critical okay. at the Opposite. same time, like <laughs> they are doing that, you know, they, they're kind of like trying to position themselves well. But I also think that they are still genuinely trying to steer the revolutionary course in what they think is the right direction. I think sometimes we get caught up in like terrible stories about, this is a naked power struggle or whatever. And like, even in, 
you know, looking at American history or any sort of imperialist country's history, like the people there are usually not like cackling saying, <laughs> I will have all do. the power. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they think they're doing a good thing. So. so Stalin, his power gradually grows throughout the coming years due to his position, which starts out kind of a weak position. It's the general secretary of the central committee of the party. This is, I mean, this is just like an administrative position, really, but it means that he can appoint people to different posts throughout the country. Uh, and so naturally, he starts appointing people who kind of agree with his way of thinking, slash who kind of end up siding with him or being loyalists, you know? So he grows his support in the party that way. Uh, he was also really clever, I'm going to be honest. Stalin was super a super clever dude. He was really good at forming, shifting alliances and sort of maintaining his own beneficial position. He's playing that Game of Thrones. Yes, for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And it's at this time that he starts an alliance with Zinoviev and Kamenev called the Troika, which is just like the triumvirate. Okay, he being Stalin or he being Trotsky? Stalin, Okay, okay, gotcha. This was to block out Trotsky, who he saw as his biggest threat. They formed the Troika. This is Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev. Kamenev, his brother-in-law. Yeah. Oh, shit. Uh-huh. Betrayal. Lenin, meanwhile, he's, you know, on the decline, but he's trying to keep the party from coming apart. Uh, he kind of sees what's happening, you know. He puts together his testament, uh, which kind of shits on various members, including <laughs> Trotsky. He just criticizes a lot of people, but not as much as he criticizes Stalin. Yeah. The final burn book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what a petty... I want to do that on my deathbed. I'm like, here's everyone I fucking hate. <laughs> <laughs> and just and then sign me out. and then die. Yeah. <laughs> what a great last act. Full of spite to the end. Well, in the Testament, he recommends Stalin's removal as general secretary. He says, Comrade Stalin, having become secretary general, has unlimited authority concentrated in his hands. And I'm not sure whether he will always be capable of using that authority with sufficient caution. Oof, yeah, not great. Comrade Trotsky, on the other hand, is distinguished not only by his outstanding ability. He is personally perhaps the most capable man present in the Central Committee. But he has displayed excessive self-assurance and has shown excessive preoccupation with the purely administrative side of the work. Ooh, okay. So (laughs) I guess that's kind of a recommendation, but not a great one. (laughs) There was nobody he was like 100% for, though, I bet. He had stuff to say about everybody. (laughs) Right. And that goes back to Lenin, right? He is, he's that way. He's very particular. Yeah. (laughs) He knew best. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, during this time, there's really like a lot, a lot of political infighting. (laughs) Don't worry about it. Everyone fights. Everyone (sighs) bitches. It's one of those palace intrigue. Yeah. We will just kind of cover the highlights in terms of understanding what Trotsky was about. Okay. So one, uh, was party democracy. Uh, in 1923, the economy was suffering under its new economic policy, which was where they introduced some market reforms after war communism. They were like, we got to rebuild the country. We got to do a little bit of basically state capitalism, regulated markets. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a retreat, but they're like just trying to spur things to get things going again at all. But the economy was still kind of doing bad. And there were strikes all over that had been suppressed by the secret police. And so it it, it is crazy. And Trotsky criticized the party for this saying that essentially it had become too bureaucratized. 
Interesting coming from him, but okay. Yeah, and this is why I said he kind of contradicts himself sometimes. But by this point, he was saying that maybe we don't need to regiment everything. Maybe he's coming around. Yeah, he was saying that there were, by now, too many secretaries appointed by the Central Committee. So, like, too much bureaucracy all over the place at the local level in the place of what would be like an organic local organization. An ungenerous reading, though, could be that he's like, fucking Stalin's running the Central Committee and he's doing a bad job. True, or Stalin (laughs) has put his dudes all over the place. Exactly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, that would be Stalin's kind of counter would be like, you just don't like them because they like me. His charitable reading is that this is too top down, that the rank and file kind of end up just kind of taking orders. You know, uh, every party decision, they're not really a part of it. It's just commands from above. There's this division of laymen versus the professional party functionaries. So later in his, in his life and in his, in his writings and everything, he's going to kind of develop this line of thought and eventually characterize the Soviet Union under Stalin's leadership, which eventually happens. He's going to characterize that as a degenerated workers state. Ooh, that's harsh. Right? This, is, this is part of like Trotskyism, that ideology. Uh, and what he says is that the Soviet Union starts out as a worker state, but conveniently once he's left, uh, gets <laughs> taken over by a bureaucratic caste that is separated from the people. Yeah. I mean, I think that's interesting because he absolutely had a part in that. So, <laughs> Yeah, he did help set this up. Uh, he is, again, not saying that 100% yet in 1923. This is kind of the seeds of it. All right. Maybe he's, he's going through a change. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I do think so. People can grow. <laughs> for sure. For sure. We, I mean, I think I've probably, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm indecisive. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I think I've changed my views gradually throughout the course of the podcast, but I don't know. I'm always uncertain. You're a bit of a chameleon, but that's why everyone likes you. <laughs> it's one of your best traits. Thank you, I think. <laughs> I'm a stubborn bitch. <laughs> so anyway, this taking this stand, criticizing the party this way, uh, obviously pisses off Stalin and his supporters. And by 1924, he ends up kind of the odd man out of the Central Committee. The Troika has maneuvered him out of pretty much all decision-making. Whoops. Okay, he got blocked. He's no longer part of the group <laughs> chat. They, oh, yeah. They have parties without him. It's harsh. Oh, they have funerals without him. Uh, this, is, this is a petty aside, but Lenin dies in 1924 while Trotsky is on the way to a health resort. Because I mean, Trotsky was recovering from an illness. Stalin tells him the wrong date for the funeral oh so that it looks God. like he can't make it back in time. So Trotsky's like, shit, oh, uh, well, whatever. I can't make it back in time. I guess I'll go on. But he could have. And so it ends up looking real embarrassing. That sucks. Oh, my God. What a dick and petty move. Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> That's rough. So definitely cut out by then. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> So uh, next point, he kind of ends up the de facto leader of the left opposition. Mm, okay, I like that. Trotsky does. It's a, it's a group opposed to the new economic policy. Uh, and it's in favor of a state program. So kind of some more direct socialism, you know, of mass industrialization, more mechanization of especially like agriculture and things, and more collectivization too. More socialism, less capitalism, sooner rather than later. That's their economic take. When they say collectivists, what, what do they mean there? Because I feel like that term changes. So collectivizing farms, um, having the small private farms of small peasants and stuff, uh, 
all that land combined together and then people go work on the collective farms. Okay, so this is fairly nationalist. Well, not nationalist in like a rah-rah sense, but, but yes, um, big government kind of thing, uh-huh. centralist. Yeah, very much so. This group was opposed by the right opposition, led by Trotsky's old New York City buddy, Nikolai Bukharin. <gasps> Betrayal. Yeah, so actually, he had actually started out kind of a left, a more left figure, but he drifts rightward over, over time. Was it because he was in the United States? No, 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 no. <laughs> that would be funny. <laughs> but no, he was in Russia the whole time. And the right opposition was all for the NEP, so the, the new economic policy, kind of stoking that until it grows into socialism. So real quick, the new economic policy, that was started under Lenin, right? Yes. Okay, uh-huh. I just want to make sure. Yeah, and it was still going on. You know, he dies and it's still going on at that time. And they were like, yeah, let's just keep feeding that. It'll grow the economy and we'll gradually, you know, make so much that we'll boom, go into socialism. All right. Uh, Stalin and his Troika, they were kind of maneuvered in the center a little bit. But at this time, they sided with the right of course. on that issue. So they were like, let's do the NEP. Another issue at hand was the permanent revolution. Ooh, OK. That sounds hardcore. Yeah. yeah it does. So <laughs> Trotsky and the left opposition... Uh, looking at the global scenario, thought that the Soviet Union really uh, was was in a risky position being the lone socialist country. <laughs> you think? And really needed some friends. And to do that meant helping other countries carry out revolutions. Ah, okay. So this is kind of like domino theory, but from the good guy side. Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's Let's go export this cool revolution to people. But the question arises, what if they're not ready? You know, what if a country's bourgeoisie is too dependent on feudalism to ever actually carry out that first stage, the bourgeois democratic revolution, right? The, uh, the first in the two stage theory, right? You have the bourgeois revolution, then you have the socialist one. Uh, and this is a question that Trotsky had thought about even before the Russian revolution. It had been kind of germinating and he'd been theorizing about this. And so by this point, he's saying, look, here's what you have to do. You have to do the revolution anyway. You have to use the proletariat, even though it's like not strong enough yet. And they have to ally with the peasants and take power. Even if they haven't really gotten to the productive level that Marx and Engels say, you know, it's like the capitalists aren't going to do that themselves if the conditions aren't right. So you just have to take power for yourselves, do the developing yourself and do this wherever, do this Worldwide, maybe it doesn't happen all at once, but this is going to increase your chances of surviving. I think that makes sense because I think even when we're talking about like the new economic plan versus like doing more socialism, I'm like, well, I'm on the socialism side because it's like, aren't you're just defaulting to what you've always done and like you don't know what's going to happen. You know, you don't know for sure that that's going to necessarily increase your productive forces. Like I definitely see the argument of like classic economics being like, no, you're just not at that productive level yet. But it's like, I mean, has anyone fucking tried? (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. And Trotsky was kind of saying that too. It's like with the revolution thing, it's like, yes, I know that we're supposed to do these two stages, but we were also not supposed to be able to carry this out in Russia in the first place. (laughs) Yeah. This was an accident, (laughs) but we did it. So maybe we should do that everywhere. So he's talking about skipping that bourgeois revolution. And listeners, if you don't recall, when we're talking about bourgeois revolution, we're talking about what you might normally think of as like a revolutionary war situation of like, it's really just the moneyed classes overthrowing, let's say like a monarchy or something. Right. Or in this probably time period, more of a colonial power. 
it could be colonial powers. Um, you could also think of like the old feudal powers in, in certain places because certain places still had kind of feudal relations, which is what Trotsky was talking about. So he's saying, let's skip that revolution. Let's just do the cool one first. Right. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, if a country is to that point, we can do that revolution. That's fine. You know, let's do that, too. <laughs> um, he's not at this point calling it the theory of permanent revolution. That's going to come later. But this is, again, the seeds of it. And that's kind of the basics of what the theory of permanent revolution is. And it's one of the big things that the left opposition was about. The right opposition, meanwhile, supported what's called socialism in one country. Sounds like pretty easy to understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> pretty isolationist, I imagine. Well, yeah. And it's, it's just essentially saying that, like, we can do it. We, you know, as the Soviet Union, we could survive as the only socialist country. We, we just need to build ourselves up and it'll be fine. You know, we'll, we'll be okay. And then maybe we can, at that point, we can worry about helping everyone else. But we got to focus on us first. And Stalin and his troika... At this point, you know, again, sort of in the center, but they were siding with the right on this one. Next up, Trotsky puts out a book in October 1924 called Lessons of October. Okay, great. Is it all about how to make the best pumpkin spice, <laughs> pumpkin carving tips, mold cider, all yeah, that stuff? It was just a, yeah, it was just a very basic book. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a little book of witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> so what he actually was doing in that book was analyzing the Russian Revolution and uh, really criticizing some of his fellow Central Committee members especially Zinoviev and Kamenev. Ooh, okay. So he didn't go straight for Stalin. He went for his bros. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> especially Zinoviev and Kamenev both were the two no votes on let's do the armed uprising. Oh, okay. And Trotsky was like, look at these fucking these cowards. Losers. Yeah. Uh, that pissed them right off. I'm sure. <laughs> and the Troika, you know, they, they have this big argument and everything. And they end up <laughs> forcing him to resign as head of the Red Army. Zinoviev is like, let's kick this motherfucker out of the party. But Stalin's like, no, come, like, come on. We don't actually have like the grounds to do that. Uh, so they kind of put him on probation. He's essentially unemployed for a while. Uh, just, just a hanger on. <laughs> oh, man. This is so clicky. This is Mean Girls, but in Russia. It super is. Yeah. <laughs> Within the Central Committee, yeah, that's, that's what's going on. Uh, next up, you have... The Troika ends up breaking up. Ooh, okay. What happened? Someone went solo? Yeah, Zinoviev and Kamenev get mad at Stalin, and so they leave to join him, to join Trotsky. What? In early 1926. After he just wrote shit about them? Yeah. <laughs> That's because hilarious. they're at that point more pissed at Stalin. That's what I'm saying. Like, there's all this back and forth. It's it's crazy to try That's to follow all of it. Ridiculous. <laughs> they either are just kind of personally out for Stalin, or they have changed their mind about the political issues. There's different ways to look at I it. Mean, I guess maybe. Um, but this is uh, they take you know them and their followers. This is not just a personal thing. Like all these groups have different factions within the party, uh, and they form what's called the United Opposition. And they're calling for kind of the same thing the left opposition was: the end of the NEP, more industrialization, less bureaucracy. And they were also opposed to uh, Stalin and the right opposition's China policy. Oh, what was that? So Stalin wanted the Communist Party of China to merge with the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Army. Oh, yeah, I remember that. During the Chinese Civil War. 
uh, and fight against the warlords in the northern expedition. Stalin was like, just go with them. They're the strongest fighting force at the time, mm-hmm. and you can betray them later. It's, it's cool. <laughs> it, it's cool. No one cares. Trust me. I do it all the time. <laughs> yeah. And meanwhile, the United Opposition wanted to support the Communist Party of China as like a separate revolutionary organization. Stalin's policy is what they do. It ends up turning out badly when Chiang Kai-shek betrays the communist in the Shanghai massacre yep. in 1927. So that's like kind of a big oops. <laughs> Weird to think about that like Mao was just coming up in this. Yes. Yeah. Oh gosh. That's <laughs> one of those like history tangents. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and the next point is when Trotsky really digs himself too deep into a hole that he can't get out of. Uh Oh, do you do another burn book? He I guess does a little worse than that. The United Opposition doesn't really catch on in mass numbers within the party or the general public. Uh, They're calling for these things or whatever, but people just aren't having it. And they keep pissing off Stalin, right? (laughs) And in October 1927, the Central Committee expels Trotsky and Zinoviev from leadership, from the Central Committee. He overplays his hand. They are pissed. They try to lead a protest in the streets saying this is not, you know, Lenin would have never had this. This is not what we fought the revolution for, you know, all this shit. Uh, And so the party gets together and expels them completely from the party along with their supporters. Okay. Do people in the streets care? Are they just like, can you just chill? Kind of. They're like, let's just chill. Uh, The, the. They try to start these protests and they're, they're pretty poorly attended. It's like, I'm sorry you got fired. I'm like busy. <laughs> <laughs> sort of. Yeah. Uh, and it's at the 15th party Congress uh, that they decided the central committee decided you cannot be in the party anymore and be in the United opposition. Uh, Zinoviev and Kamenev and their supporters say, whatever, that's fine. We're not in the, you know, we're not in the opposition anymore. Our bad betrayal again so many fake friends and trotsky's like fuck that i'm i'm sticking to it i'm right you guys are wrong and so they're like fine you're right but you're exiled to kazakhstan so enjoy it oh gosh okay that sucks i mean props for sticking to your guns these guys do seem like dicks (laughs) so they exile him january 31st 1928 to kazakhstan first and a month later he and his wife and his son are exiled to turkey so completely out of the USSR. Yeah, they're just gonzo. Uh, next week, have his period of exile. So this this part's not super exciting, in my opinion. 12 years left in his life to go, but it's, it's there's, there's not a lot, I don't think. He stays in house arrest at the consulate, the Soviet consulate in Istanbul for a couple months before they move him to an island uh, where he's like constantly surveilled by the Turkish police. Uh, he gets like volunteer bodyguards because there's also like white army exiles who oh, are living nearby. He's like, yeah. I don't want them to kill me because I killed a lot of them. He's meanwhile, while he's in exile, he's applying to move to different places, to Belgium, to France, to Norway, to Germany, to the UK. And they're all telling him, fuck off. We don't want you. <laughs> yeah, you're a lot of trouble, dude. <laughs> in 1932, uh, the Soviet government revoked his and his family's uh, citizenship. Oh, so he bummer. Was stateless. Yeah, uh, in late 1932, he starts secretly writing opposition groups within the Soviet Union. Ooh, okay. Still trying to stir up shit, even from exile. Yeah, and it, it, he starts this weird group called the Block of Oppositions, which is this, I mean, it's very strange. It's a collection of various, like, anti-Stalin groups. Yeah, he's, he's just trying to take them down. Yeah, and, they, you know, some of them don't seem to have much in common. 
but they're all trying to work together to do something. It's not quite <laughs> clear what they do, and I'm not sure that they do much, uh, but they end up confessing to a lot whenever they're uh, captured and put on show trials in the Moscow trials in 1936 and 1938. Great. Cool. So he gets some people in trouble. <laughs> yes, that's part of the Great Purge. Trotsky's kind of entire family line that's left uh, that hasn't gone with him to exile uh, ends up getting the getting the axe there too. Oof, that sucks. You're just like I'm just his like third cousin. I don't even know this guy. Yeah, they <laughs> they, they they really take them take them Jesus. quite out. Okay, it's uh, brutal stuff. Yeah, it's July 1933. He's offered asylum in France, but they end up just putting him under police surveillance again. Uh, they move him to this tiny village called Barbizon, and, and it's, he's he's just like co- constantly watched. In 1935, he gets permission to move to Norway, and he lives for a year at Conrad Knudsen's house. He, he's like this journalist, politician sort of guy. That lasts for a while, but in the summer of 1936, uh, the leader of the fascist party Uh-oh. in Norway, uh, Vidkun Quisling. Shit, I didn't know they did that there. Yeah, this is kind of in in you know in the lead up to the bad things, and so they were flirting with it too. Yeah, nineteen thirties. That is the kind of the time for that to take off, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, and this uh, guy was kind of stirring up shit. Can you believe we've got this radical communist guy here? You know, someone ought to do something about this. <laughs> and, I mean, people burgle his house in August. Oh, and the government send police to his house, demanding that he agrees to give no interviews, write nothing political, and to let them read his mail. Wow, no thank you. Fuck that. Yeah, that's what he says. They <laughs> interrogate him about his political activities, and then they move him out to a farm out in the middle of nowhere and put him under house arrest, stuck in indoors for 22 hours a day under guard by 13 cops. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm picturing... <laughs> If this is a drunk history, like that would be the voiceover of him being like, no, fuck that. Like <laughs> but with a guy who looks like Trotsky, just with my yeah. voice. No, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, thank you. <laughs> and they're like, well, you got to go anyway. Sorry. <laughs> Fine. Uh, no letters in a route. Only visits from his lawyer. Shitty time. Is he there with his family at least? Yes. Yeah. Ugh. I mean, it sucks for them too. I'm the therapist. Yeah, for real. He's there from September to December 1936 when they get deported to Mexico. Yay! I mean, boob deportion, but yay, Mexico. Yeah, he he gets somewhere (laughs) to go. He arrives January 9th, 1937, greeted by Mexican President Lázaro Cárdenas. Hell yeah, I love that guy. Yeah, he greets him and when he arrives, and uh, they end up living in the Coyoacán area of Mexico City. Beautiful neighborhood. Yes, yeah. Gorgeous. Awesome place. And they live in La Casa Azul. Guys, highly recommend that experience if you are ever in Mexico City. It is the house of Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera and for a time, Trotsky. Yeah, yeah. He was, like you said, he's living there with... I I had this typed out the other way and I was like, this makes more sense to type it this way as Frida Kahlo and her husband, Diego Rivera. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Um, not to shit on Diego. I mean, like he, he was, he was an important artist as well. Problematic. (laughs) Uh, and they live there for a couple years before moving a few blocks away in April, 1939. 
He does a few things during his Mexican exile, including having an affair with Frida Kahlo. I was just about to ask. I'm like, I'm pretty sure they did, but I didn't want to didn't spread any gossip. <laughs> spread any gossip about historical figures. Yeah, about dead people. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> did you hear? Yeah, so they, they totally did that. Hell yeah. Kind of not the best guest, I guess, in Diego Rivera's <laughs> opinion, anyway. Whatever. He cheated on her so many fucking times. Oh, so, well, there you go. They cheated on each other, though. They were... They were kind of... They were turbulent. They deserved each other. <laughs> yeah, they were. And it wasn't like in like a chill, polyamorous way, as far as I understand. Like mm. they just were... Because they would get jealous and shit and like be upset about it. So it's like, okay, maybe right. you guys should have tried ethical non-monogamy, but whatever. <laughs> Something. Yeah. So that ends up... You know, that's why he ends up moving out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. He also, so during this time, he does some work with some members of the Socialist Workers Party, uh, which is like a, a breakaway kind of Trotskyist group from the Communist Party USA. Mm, okay. Uh, he works with Chinese Trotskyist Chen Dushu, who had been a co-founder of the Communist Party of China, uh, but by this point was more of a Trotskyist. Uh, so he, he's kind of like still in the revolutionary scene, you know. In 1937, there's this weird event called the Dewey Commission. Uh, which held this kind of weird independent inquiry into the charges that were made against Trotsky and the others at the Moscow show trials. The Dewey Commission sounds very American. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was set up by the American Committee for the Defense of Leon Trotsky. Wait, for the defense? Uh, yeah, so this is, you know, a quote-unquote independent inquiry, but it's basically like trying to show that the Moscow trials were rigged and that Trotsky was innocent. Hmm, okay. Which, to be fair, there was, like, a lot of evidence that, I mean, because Moscow trials are, are pretty bad. Yeah, sounds like it. They tortured people or threatened people to get confessions. Like, one of the big things they wanted was confessions from people to say, look, he did it, you know. Which, not to say that, like, no one did anything, but it's just kind of like, it's it's all messed up because of that. Yeah, that's not reliable. Right. And so 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 that's a mess. There's, you know... They accused Trotsky of, like, working with fascists and stuff. What the fuck? Uh, which doesn't seem like what he would do. No. The only evidence that I found of this is mm, from a pretty problematic source for any listeners who are familiar with a guy named Grover Fur, who's a historian, but he's very, like, kind of defensive of Stalin. Um, he presents his work as, like, non-partial or whatever, but it always seems to end up in that, in that vein. His source was a telegram that Trotsky had sent to the Central Committee telling them like, hey, you guys should rise up, you know, work with me, rise up against Stalin because he's an asshole, you know, basically. That's nothing. Well, yeah. And Stalin <laughs> wrote on this like uh, fascist traitor or something like that. He's an, you know, something he made a personal note on there. And like this was the evidence that he was. But it's that's like that's nothing. not much. <laughs> Yeah, so, that's bullshit. <laughs> there might be more out there. I'm welcome to. I would like to read it, uh, but I didn't find a lot because I was like, this is kind of a weird accusation about, you know, someone who really fucking hated the Nazis. But yeah, yeah, that's weird. Uh, but anyway, they put on that kind of inquiry and they say, whoa, look, he's definitely innocent. OK, one one sec. I just I want to be clear on who was backing him. Like you said, it was Americans, but like what what kind like. It wasn't what kind the of government. Americans? Okay, so yeah, they, it was um, it was a. Was it part of like the Communist Party? Well, it was the Trotskyists. Uh, the ones he had been like writing to and shit. 
yeah, his friends there, but also like kind of just some broad socialist cis sort of figures on on the broad left who were mm, critical of what Stalin was doing at the time. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So that was the Dewey Commission thing. In 1938, uh, Trotsky and his supporters founded the Fourth International, which, so you remember we had like the first, the second, the third, which was the common turn. And now this is the Fourth International. Okay. So they're not calling it a common turn anymore? No. So this one mm, is... Rebrand. Uh, an inter- yeah, it's a rebrand. So this one is a uh, an international revolutionary socialist organization. It's it's like the common term, but Trotskyist. Okay, gotcha. He started his own club. Got it. Yes, uh, it's ma- it's you know one of its big deals is that it was like anti-Stalin. You know, Stalin and the Soviet Union was like you know this is where he starts saying you know this is a degenerated worker state that sort of thing. It technically maybe sort of still exists today. It's like really weak and fragmented, but it's like it's not off the books, I guess. <laughs> they still have a website or something. Yeah. And people will say like, oh, I'm a, you know, this organization is a member of the Fourth International. You don't have to do anything, I don't think, to be <laughs> You can it. just you say just, it. Yeah. Uh, that's in 1938. In 1939, he does something weird. He agrees to testify at the Dyes Committee. Okay. Uh, which is a House of Representatives committee led by Martin Dyes, who was this total reactionary who was using the committee to hunt communists. Ooh. Okay. So that's a bad look. No, yeah, I don't love that. <laughs> but in addition to giving testimony that was going to like say, oh, here's what Stalin's secret police, the NKVD, are doing against me and against my followers, he was also going to go there to argue against America's suppression of its communists and say, like, you're an asshole for doing all this, you know? Call him out. Okay. So he's going to, he gets to shit on Stalin and the Americans. Great. Right. Yeah. That's what he was going to try to do. <laughs> But when they found out he was doing that second half, uh, they denied him a visa and were just like, no, 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 you can't. JK, stay home. (laughs) We don't really want to talk to you. Yes. Uh, And and then, of course, you know, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union says, well, this guy's an asshole, you know, talking to the feds, basically. Yeah, that's it's still not a good look. No, it's it's not. I don't know if that's good enough for a strike three, but it's close. I don't I don't think so, because I get what he's trying to do. And I don't think he was really trying to, like, give up, like, oh, here's you should arrest this guy, you know, or whatever. That's true. All right. I'll take it off my list. I don't think it was a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Not not smart. Uh, In February 1940, he publishes his own testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, his health is declining and he's like worried that he's going to die. So he's like expressing his last thoughts and stuff. My own burn book. Right. <laughs> yes. All right. So we're going to roll around now to Trotsky's uh, departure from his mortal coil. I heard he got assassinated. He did. Um, by this point, you know, he's been in exile for a while, but Stalin back home was still freaked out about Trotsky. I mean, to be fair, we did see that he was actually trying to stir up some shit. Yeah, I mean, I'd be concerned, too. He started a whole nother international. Yeah, that's another thing. Starting clubs, doing testimonies. Yeah. He's essentially, at this point, trying to encourage a popular revolution, a socialist one, but still within the Soviet Union, you know. And so Stalin, you know, sees him as a threat. He's the old enemy. He, He wants him dead. So he puts together some plots with his secret police, the NKVD, to do just that. Uh, they try to do this in March 1939, and they fail. I couldn't find details on that attempt. Then they try again in May 1940, 
uh, with an NKVD agent and Mexican painter uh, David Alfaro Siqueiros. Was he he helped? Yes, yeah. He, I mean, he and this agent like raided Trotsky's via, and <gasps> they end up shooting his grandson in the foot in the process. Holy shit! They they're defeat. I mean, he's arrested. Uh, this other guy ends up like strangled uh, to death. Like one of his bodyguards who may have like helped him get in or something like that. A big fiasco, but it doesn't work. I'm looking at this guy's art. It's pretty creepy. Oh, he's. I mean, he's one of the big ones. Yeah, yeah. He did. He was one of the muralists. Yeah. Uh, the next plot would succeed. Its roots go back all the way to 1938, when Spanish communist NKVD agent Ramon Mercader romanced one of Trotsky's confidants. Uh-oh. Sylvia Agiloff. Oh, gosh. Okay. More intrigue. So he goes in with his, like, alias or whatever and romances her and eventually convinces her to move with him to Mexico City in October 1939. A Spanish communist. Interesting. Yes, yeah, he had uh, done work there and everything. But this isn't like Spanish communism in the sense of like Spanish Civil War. We're not there yet. Or are we? God, I'm bad at dates. <laughs> so this is actually like on the other side of the Spanish Civil War. Uh, he had been recruited by an NKVD officer during the Spanish Civil War when he was um, mm, okay. when he was in, in kind of involved in that. And they took him to Moscow, trained him as an agent. And that's kind of how he got a start. So Mercator um, convinces Agilov to move with him to Mexico City. And he begins to meet with Trotsky through her introduction. Because she was one of his confidants, right? God, imagine getting scammed like you think your, your boyfriend's into. He's just using for an assassination plot. Yeah, that's got to be... Uh, if she was a musician, she'd make a great album about that. Damn. <laughs> For real. Uh, he starts meeting with Trotsky and talking communism with him and befriending his guards and doing favors for him and whatever. Buddy, buddy, you know. And on August 20th, 1940, he tells Trotsky, hey, I got this document to show you. So he ends up alone with Trotsky in his study where he attacks him with an ice axe. Whoa. What are you doing with an ice axe in Mexico City? Wouldn't someone be like, hey, what's that for? <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe there was in some In summer? Sort of, uh, I mean, it could have still been used for like refrigeration, you know, if people still had ice boxes. I guess, yeah. <laughs> okay. But he, I mean, he deals him a huge blow to the head, but Trotsky doesn't die. They end up fighting. Mercator ends up breaking his hand in the struggle. Trotsky's like spitting at him. Uh, oh and the, the bodyguards rush in and nearly beat Mercator to death. But Trotsky calls him off, spares him, saying that this guy's got to answer questions. He's got to go to trial. We've got to find out who the hell's killing me. You know, this is a goon of Stalin, you know. But he's gushing from the head. They rush him to the hospital. Uh, he ends up dying the next day of his wounds. Oh, bummer. Yeah. Uh, Mercator, for his part, is tried and convicted of murder, but he sticks with his alias, claiming he just had like a personal dispute with Trotsky that he had wanted to marry Angelov, but that Trotsky had refused. And that was his story. He stuck to it. He ends up getting sentenced to 20 years in prison, uh, but his identity kind of remained covert. Mm, wow. That sucks. Yeah. He ends yeah. up released in May, 1960 goes to uh, Cuba and then to the Soviet union the next year uh, where the head of the KGB presented him with the hero of the Soviet union medal. 
<gasps> Shitty. Ugh. <laughs> I know we're not giving strikes to Stalin right now, but that's a strike for sure. <laughs> <laughs> for sure. All right, so that's the life and times of Leon Trotsky. What impressions do you have? This guy was a troublemaker. Like, that <laughs> that is his brand. It's yeah. just like stirs up shit he can be petty he can be really focused and determined i think to his detriment (laughs) like that that's that's my big critique of this guy so like i like where he ended up in terms of like trotskyist theory like i would i would find myself like siding with that kind of theory Mm -hmm. but i don't like all the shit he did to get there i guess he's a bit divisive like and that's that's kind of a stupid term to use because like nowadays it's like, oh, you're so divisive just because you want to like do <laughs> socialism or something. But I don't mean he's that. Controversial. Like, he's very willing to engage in factionalism to kind of get into these petty. And we saw that with Lenin too. He would get petty as well. But it seems to me anyway that, that Lenin was more able to set that aside when he, when he felt he needed to or then, and Trotsky doesn't seem as much he seems more committed to that, like you said, more committed to what he thinks. Well, I think it's ironic, too, because if you think of Trotskyism as a, you know, a theory or a movement, it is kind of about international cooperation. But like, bro can't even handle national cooperation. <laughs> <laughs> so like, I don't know how well that would have worked out. Yeah, I mean, the flip side of that, though, is like, if you know you're right, why should you be giving into people who are wrong? Yeah, and like Stalin does suck. I'm not going to pretend like he did suck. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a good thing to be upset about, but I, mm-hmm. I think what's frustrating to me is the things he ends up being anti were things that he helped cement. Which like sure, you know, you can grow as a person and you know, maybe that's what happened. It's unclear if he just like changed his mind or if like he was doing that under duress which I don't think we could ever know that. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at my strikes. Both of my strikes were when he was head of the army. Mm, so he was too authoritarian in your opinion. And not just in like the, the right wing's use of that is like any, any communism, you know, is authoritarian, no, but like, like too heavy handed. Yeah. Like conscripting people, you know, shooting deserters, uh, the Kronstadt rebellion. I was not a fan of. Yeah. These are all things that I think if you had talked to, Trotsky in his later years, I don't think he would be fans of. See, I kind of think he would have. You think so? I think, I mean, when it, the way he would come to that is he would say, I did what I had to do. I would do it again. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. And, and you know, it's kind of like Lenin says, you know, when our time comes, we're not going to apologize for the terror. You know, tell them all about it because we did it and we would do it again. It was necessary is what his position was. And I don't know. I mean... That's the thing I was mentioning before is like, it's hard with history. You know, like, let's say we go the Trotskyist route. Okay. Because his criticism, I, I think they kind of look valid. Like you said, bureaucracy, it, it was clearly a problem. But like maybe following his course, that, that might have messed stuff up worse. Like if we had too much party democracy, maybe the whole thing would have broken apart. If he had done like the world revolution, maybe that would have stretched them too thin. I mean, I I could see that for sure, but I I think it's just, again, I come back to like, what are you actually offering the people? And it sounds like, yeah, I'm like, we've talked about before, like, yeah, conditions did improve and they were under massive amounts of stress. So like, it's impressive they even survived. 
But at the end of the day, if you're under a government that like can just like execute you and shit, not mm-hmm. great. <laughs> you yeah, know, if true. if you're a you know a small island near Petrograd and you ask for free freedom of speech and then get like fucking run over, that's not great. That's true. Yeah, and again, Emma Goldman agrees. Yeah. So. Me and Emma. <laughs> Kronstadt could certainly have been handled differently. I think. I think that was a case of like overzealous right like i don't know i I can see a lot of the excesses of the civil war is like well not great but i can see why you did it because it's the civil war concept (laughs) is 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 kind of that taken too far i think yeah oh i have a question yeah so i was going through his picks on wikipedia um what is the polish soviet war is that just part of the civil war uh this was in 1920 uh, this was between between Russia and uh, Poland that was like kind of newly independent. What, what happens after World War One is they annul the treaty that they had signed, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, the one that lost mm, them all okay. this land, including Poland. Um, and so they're like, well, we're moving back into that. But Poland <laughs> oh. was all like, well, but we want to be independent. And so they fought and both sides basically are just like, well, we're, you know, we're just going to take as much land as we can. Trotsky at the time actually was like, no, the Red Army cannot handle this. We're, we're dealing with too much fucking shit. But Lenin kind of thought that, no, 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 we can handle this. We'll, we'll, be, we'll be all right. You, you train the Red Army better now. We can do it. But they lost. The, the Soviets lost. And so they end up just kind of signing a treaty to put things back the way they were. <laughs> oh, I mean, good for Poland. Yes, yeah. Poland <laughs> uh, survived that. And then that kind of bitterness lasts till the Second World War when the Soviet Union takes them over again. Not a good look. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Especially if you're Polish. Okay. I don't think I have any other questions. And I already gave my, my opinions on this guy. Mixed bag. Yeah. He didn't strike out, but he came close. And, it, you know, and that was only because you were kind of generous with the strikes. It's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this is the guy whose ideas form kind of, I would say, the foundation of Trotskyism. If you look at Trotskyist parties, they're very idiosyncratic, I would say. So they, there's a lot of different understandings of Trotskyism, basically. There's a lot of variations and additions and all this stuff. So What's their, like, one-liner? Their elevator pitch? Okay, so first of all, it's like, it's Marxism-Leninism. Okay, it's, it's normal-ass, yeah. you know. <laughs> Run of the mill. It's we agree with Lenin plus permanent revolution all right so export the revolution everywhere do it even if it doesn't look like you can do it and then the anti-bureaucracy angle so the degenerated worker state don't get separated from the people don't let this like bureaucratic kind of you know cast of party apparatus guys take over I mean, I'm down with that. I, I think that's, that's again, why, why I find him so interesting is that, like, I'm into the theory. I don't know if I'm into the guy, but I'm into the theory. See, I, I am into the analysis of, especially the, the, the bureaucracy thing. I get it. But I think a better solution rather than just being like, hey, let's not do that. You know, because, okay, how do we do that? I think yeah, there's that, a, You got to come to the table with ideas. You can't just suggest a problem. <laughs> <laughs> right, and I think the better solution to that is something like the mass line. Mm, yeah. Right? Stay in touch with the masses. Don't lose that bridge there. Be of the people in that way. I think that makes sense, totally. Because, yeah, 
it is very much just saying like don't do this what's like all right what do we do yeah <laughs> right yeah you could say it's implied of like bureaucracy is kind of removed from the people but yeah it could be more clear mm-hmm. so there we are okay great what are we doing next week uh next week we are going to discuss a video that was recommended to us by a listener uh it's a video from philosophy tube who puts out great stuff uh and it's called witchcraft gender and marxism awesome okay i remember yeah we watched this a long time ago and we were like oh this is good and so we saved it up for halloween it's gonna be spooky yeah it's and it's great stuff uh there's there's there was too much we were initially going to be like oh let's just do a listener question but there's too much for it so absolutely so yeah we're gonna break it out into a whole episode awesome all right get your spells and potions ready yeah i'll bring a cauldron hell yeah yeah (laughs) that'll be fun Hey there, comrades. Just jumping in to remind you of all of our social media. We are on Twitter at Teach Communism, Instagram at Teach Me Communism. You can shoot us an email. That's teachmecommunism at gmail.com. Any of those places are good to send us an episode suggestion or a question, anything you think would be useful feedback for us or just your admiration. If you want to admire us in a public manner, and you should, you can go to Apple Podcasts to give us a review. It is the best way to help people find the show. Love when people write and review us. Please do both. We are also on YouTube if that's how you prefer to listen to podcasts, or if you know someone that's the only way they'll listen to podcasts, send them to our page. And we have a Patreon. For five bucks a month, you get access to our notes for each week's episode, including the backlog of notes, which is a very handy resource for up and coming commies. And at the end of the year, all of the funds from Patreon will be given to local mutual aid in the DFW area. So ain't going to line our pockets. Finally, we have merch. Check us out at Tee Public. You can find shirts and I believe also stickers and magnets and all kinds of fun stuff with catchphrases from the show or episode art, stuff like that. The link to that store is in the show notes, so check that out. Currently, Tee Public is running a sale from the 27th through the 31st of October. You get $13 t-shirts and everything else is up to 35% off. Okay, that's all the internet. Join us next time for another episode of Teach Me Communism, where the class struggle is always in session. Bye, y'all.